This episode of Haunted Cosmos is brought to you by Right Response Ministries, Squirrely Joe's Coffee, Private Family Banking, and The Family Captain. Did you know that patrons of Haunted Cosmos get access to a weekly patron-only bonus show called The Dusty Tome? And the top two tiers of patrons get early access to ad-free shows. Join today on patreon.com for these benefits and more. And now, on with the show. What is myth? On this show, we often refer to Christianity as the true myth. But what does that mean? Doesn't that imply that Christianity isn't really true? That the scriptures can't be trusted? Doesn't it call everything we hold as precious and absolute into question, even our very salvation? No, it doesn't. One day, two friends sat across from each other, engaged in one of their very usual but amiable debates. The argument was over the value and impact of story in the human life. The one, a prodigious poet, staunch atheist, and lover of the rich literary history in the Western canon, said in an exasperated tone, myths are lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. No, replied his Catholic friend, they are not lies. The friend explained that myths were oftentimes the only way in which foundational truths could be expressed. He said that since we've come from God, myth is woven into our nature. Even though the myths we make are fallible and not authoritative, they almost always convey at least some level of truth. It is the rejection of myth's value that leads to the lifeless abyss of modernism and materialism. The first man, the atheist, was left speechless. He always wanted to love myth, but never felt it was the responsible thing to do. He listened intently as his friend continued. And the friend said that the story, the myth of Christ is a special one because it is the one myth that is wholly true, wholly true without any error. When one looks closely, he'll see that all of history, all of myth actually flows from this central one. The implication is that even in the corrupted and errant man-made myths, one can still find kernels of truth because every myth's ultimate inspiration is the fountainhead myth, the true myth, that God is writing with and in and through all of creation. Oh, and by the way, the first man actually did succumb to the true myth himself, actually did repent and put his faith in Christ. His name was C.S. Lewis, and his friend was J.R.R. Tolkien. But you've seen the title of today's episode already. I mean, you tapped on it to get this whole thing playing. So what on earth does all of this have to do with giants? In the last episode, we mined the rich gold veins of Scripture to seek out anything we could regarding giants there in the text. Now in this episode, we push off into the stormy seas and murky waters of extra-biblical literature, myths and legends from all geography and time, to see what else we might find. In order to do this with wisdom, we have to know what these myths and legends are, fallible stories passed down by fallible men, but often stories that nonetheless contain nuggets of truth, 
even truth wrapped in the smoke and fog of legend and folklore. We hope to sift the truth from the hearsay and hyperbole, finding the foundational motifs of reality beneath whatever cultural gilding lies on the story's surface. We implore you, especially when listening to the really old stuff, to constantly be comparing the narrative you're hearing to the true myth of scripture. How much of the two coincide? This is important because if the stories are to be believed, giants are not limited to the grounds immediately surrounding and within the stage of scripture. Far from it. It appears that no matter where you go in the world, you can safely say, here there were giants. According to the ancient Greek writers, there was only chaos at first. As with any classical myth, apart from the true myth of Christianity, Greek mythology is so full of whirling color and grandeur and intrigue that it can cause one to lose sight of the ever-present contradictions. The first of these contradictions comes from the Greek conception of chaos, which is conceived of as both utter nothingness, yet also full of potential life and essence, much like a ball placed at the top of a wooden ramp is full of potential energy, even though it hasn't moved at all. From chaos came five things. Gaia, the Earth, was the first. She was followed by Tartarus, the underworld. After Tartarus was Uranus, the heavens. After Uranus was Nyx, the night. And after Nyx was Erebos, the darkness of the underworld, the ever-present stench of doom that hangs heavy in the halls of Tartarus. So in the Greek myth, chaos is the churning oven that made all of these things. But the opposite is true, says the Christian. It was not chaos, but logos, which made all things. But I digress. Gaia, being the Mother Earth, was of course the one among these first primordial essences to represent life and fertility. Shortly after her creation, her counterpart, Uranus, the heavens, sought her out and surrounded her. They came to love one another, and so the two conceived, marking the first haphazard union between the heavens and the Earth. From this unnatural union came three kinds of children, the Cyclopes, the Hecatonchares, and the Titans. Uranus was massively proud of the 12 mighty titans which he had helped make, but he was disgusted by his other children. The Cyclopes were one-eyed giants, great makers of weapons and other metals. There's an interesting parallel between these grotesque beasts, their skills with metals and weaponry, and the supposed forbidden knowledge given to humans by the Watchers in the lore of First Enoch. Anyway, the other hated children were the Hecatonchares, the hundred-handed ones, they were great monstrous masses of 50 different heads, a horrifying lump of body parts. Uranus, again with loathing in his heart, bound the Cyclopes and Hecatonchares and placed them in Tartarus. The symbolism here is striking. Tartarus was the underworld, a belly of the earth, so to speak. And who was the earth? Gaia, these two races' mother. In his wrath, Uranus imprisoned his children in the womb from which they had come. But the degeneracy did not stop there. From corrupt roots, chaos, sprang a corrupt tree. Gaia and Uranus, who yielded their corrupt fruit, the Titans, who soon proved to house a poisonous seed within them. You see, Gaia was angry at Uranus for sending two-thirds of their children to wallow in the misery of Tartarus. Seeking revenge, she gave the Titan, Kronos, her beloved and youngest son, an adamant sickle, and told him to wait in ambush for the coming of Uranus. Kronos would be the hand through which Gaia would exact her revenge. 
When Uranus came, Kronos leapt at him with the sickle and castrated his father, the heavens, spilling his blood to the earth and into the sea. And be sure to catch what happens next. From the blood of heaven, mixing with the dust of the earth, there came three new races. The Furies, the Wood Nymphs, and the Giants. What's striking to me is the way in which the entire fabric of this mythology is so clearly a corruption of the Christian truth. Logos is changed to chaos, and instead of a triune godhead who is supremely good and sovereign, there are three generations of corrupt divine beings who produce offspring from their corruptions. But what happens when the divine blood mixes with the earth? Giants are born. And the giants of Greek myth are nothing we're unfamiliar with. Hesiod states that they rose from the earth with spears in their hands and shining armor covering their bodies. A sharp disdain for the heavens was always instilled in them while they remained loyal to Gaia, the earth, their mother. As time passed and the titans, with Kronos now at their head, eventually begat the gods, and the gods grew jealous and sought to make war upon the titans to supplant them, Gaia begged the giants for aid in protecting her children, the titans. And so, as Homer tells us, the giants, quote, threatened to make war with the gods in Olympus and tried to set Mount Asa on the top of Mount Olympus and Mount Pelion on the top of Mount Asa that they might scale heaven itself, end quote. In a charge to supplant the dwellers of heaven, the giants tried to build a great tower that would allow them entrance into Uranus's halls. Zeus would not have this. In wrath and fury, he cast down the mountains that the giants had stacked. Hercules joined the fray, waging war with the giants and throwing them down in a mighty slaughter. With the Olympian pantheon now firmly in charge of the heavenly and earthly rule, Gaia mourned the loss of the titans and the giants that had remained loyal to her. Not wanting them to be entirely destroyed and still covered in the blood of the giants who had been killed, she gave new life to whatever blood was still steaming and fresh on the battleground. With these new giants also came new monstrous features. Not only were these beings said to be of enormous size and strength and appetite for violence, but they were also said to have serpentine legs. Instead of legs, these new giants had snakes. Do you see it there again? A mythic motif echoing through the pagan lore? Those born from the blood of heaven and the dust of earth are an evil thing, haters of both gods and men. They take the form of a giant serpent chimera, the giant savages, so villainous to men, now combined in nefarious flesh magic with fallen divines, evil beings seeking the ruin of the world. But the world is bigger than ancient Greece, and there are many other myths to sift. The Nordic sagas recount the prehistory of the Scandinavian lands, the lands that were once, perhaps, called Hyperborea. These sagas speak of frost giants, fire giants, and mountain giants that stand between the gods and men here tormenting them and now helping them, depending on how the giants might benefit from the outcome. One of the more prominent giants, Argelmir, dwells in a grand beer hall whose decoration is of particular note. The Voluspa saga describes it thus, quote, A hall I saw far from the sun, on Nastrond it stands, and the doors face north. Venom drops through the smoke vent down, far around the walls do serpents wind, end quote. On the other side of the world, in the deepest reaches of South America, the land of Patagonia, which means big feet, by the way, holds dozens of legends of giants. In his quest to circumnavigate the earth, Magellan wrote of numerous encounters with them, some pleasant and some evil. 
But these legends really begin with the Mayan and Aztec and Incan myths from the Central American lands to the north. Quetzalcoatl and Veracocha are the gods who brought civilization to the world according to these myths. Quetzalcoatl is worshipped by the cult of the feathered serpent. He being always associated with the rattlesnake and wise birds such as crows. Viracocha was the creator of the world for the Incan people who settled near Lake Titicaca. His first creations were the giants. Made from large stones, they were brainless fiends who would not follow his commands. In wrath, he destroyed the giants with a great flood that lasted 60 days. After this, he made the humans out of smaller rocks and was more pleased with them. However, seven of the antediluvian giants had somehow survived the flood and returned. Fearing another deluge, they built a mighty pyramid, the Cholulu Pyramid, so that they might reach into heaven and stay the gods' wrath. But alas, the gods destroyed the pyramid with fire from heaven and scattered the giants and all peoples across the land, confusing their language. The Hindus speak of the Bakasuras, red-haired demon giants who build a great altar rising up to heaven. The Irish people say that the first inhabitants of their land were the Fomorians, the giant sea peoples. These legends serve to fuel the Anglo-Saxon legend of Grendel, the cannibal giant and cave dweller eventually slain by Beowulf. Even in Japan, there are legends of the Ono, great horn giants who acted as gods or devils of war. The term Ono can also mean ghost or invisible spirit, much like the multiple meanings of the Hebrew word Rephaim. But what about other less mythical myths, if I might use a strange turn of phrase? What about things that ride that thin borderline between prehistory and history? Things maybe a little bit less difficult for us to conceptualize than these ancient gods and demigods. About 35 miles south of Mount Hermon's summit lies the Gilgal Rephaim, the Wheel of Giants, mentioned in the opening story of our previous episode, Giants Part 1. And if you'll remember, just ever so slightly to the north of this strange megalith between it and Hermon, a twisting and writhing serpent mound can be seen raised up out of the earth. This is all very interesting, sure, but what else could be said? What else can be found that might shed more light on this ancient lore and forgotten history? In southern Illinois, the Shawnee people have a story about a great 200-mile wall of stone that was built long ago before the Great Flood by a race of immigrant giants. Can you hear the sound of their tools on the great stones as they built? But when the floods came, the Shawnee say that every one of these giants from faraway lands was killed in the waters, swept away in the fury of the deluge, despite their desperate attempts to climb the peaks and escape the waters to no avail. Or was it? Other tribes in the area disagree. Some think that a handful of giants somehow survived, clinging to the flotsam of the floodwaters with their unholy strength. In fact, some think that the Great Stone Wall was just the beginning of the mark they would leave on the North American Midwest. In Ohio, remnants of an old religion can be found peppered across the moderately rolling landscape. Great earthen mounds rise up like a pronounced Teton covered in grass. What they are is no secret, they're burial mounds. We know this because they've been excavated and investigated many times. In fact, some are still being investigated even today. But one of these mounds has remained relatively untouched due to its particular strangeness. If you walk in a specific park just east of Cincinnati on a small plateau overlooking an old meteor crater, you'll notice a twisting mound of lush grass that writhes its way through the landscape for about a quarter mile. 
The origins of this unnatural, but on the face of it, underwhelming thing have always been hotly contested. Some believe it's about a thousand years old, give or take, but many, many local tribesmen and highly experienced archeologists believe it's much closer to 3000 years old. But why does anybody really care how old it is? Well, if you're somehow able to get a bird's eye view of this 1300 foot long ridge of dirt, you'll find that it takes a very specific shape. There it is, it's the clear effigy of a serpent with a spiraling coiled tail at one end and a gaping mouth at the other. It's the largest earth effigy ever found. It appears to be opening its mouth to swallow something as well. What that something is, we don't know. But the stories say that there used to be an altar on top of it where human sacrifice would be performed. This is probable because of the decapitated and burned remains of skeletons found at the site along with ceremonial knives. Oh, and some of these skeletons, by the way, are fascinating. Some of them are quite large. Now, nothing crazy like the 14-foot-tall Og, King of Bashan. These skeletons are more akin to Goliath, oh, over seven feet, with rumors of some standing even nine feet tall, found by the first settlers who discovered this strange site. Could this be evidence of a migrant group of giants dispersed by Babel or Moses or Joshua, seeking refuge in what would one day be America? trying to maintain that same religious law of Canaan that they had inherited from their forefathers all the way back at the foot of Mount Hermon. Join us for this and more in this episode of Haunted Cosmos. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Haunted Cosmos. Haunted Cosmos. It's the Haunted Cosmos. Da, 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 da. Okay, no, we're not going to do that. Absolutely not. No, sorry about that, everyone. It's just Welcome completely back. shifted the mood. Brian, say hello to the people. Man, people, hello. <laughs> I just want to say it is so good to join you here. Love the feedback that we heard from Giants Part 1. Mm -hmm. You guys were hypothetically fascinated look, by not, We haven't released it yet. We I'm don't just, know. We don't I'm know. just assuming. The feedback could be horrible. People could be like, that was the worst thing I've ever heard right, in my life. Right. But they won't. You know what? Still, won't. thank you for the feedback. Though. Thank you, Even though. if that we is We appreciate it. it. Either way, listeners, whatever you told us about that episode, we probably appreciate it. Right. Okay? But we maybe, probably do. But maybe we didn't. If, but, it, if it wasn't about how handsome and smart we were, then we probably didn't. But look, at any rate, you all know the title of the show. We're back for part two yeah, part of two. our introductory series in Giants. This season yeah. has been a lot of introductory stuff. Introduction mm -hmm. to Bigfoot and now Giants. Yeah. We have some more introductory shows coming ahead, yeah. but I'm not going to spoil those. Don't spoil it. Well, in part one. If you spoil it, I will kill if you. If you spoil it, I walk. Right now. Okay, I walk. I actually have. <laughs> you are armed. Straight to jail. Let's not get us kicked off if of any platforms. But. <laughs> so in part one of the series, we looked at the scriptural data informing us of giants. Mm -hmm. We wanted to see what does the Bible actually say about people that are supposedly very large, or yeah. are they even people, right? Yeah. And now in this show, now that we have that foundation, we want to launch off of that and try to build a great edifice of stories from all over the world yeah. that talk about giants, myths, legends, some of it like pretty well-documented history mm -hmm. and see what can we take out of that so that we can get a, a good, well-rounded view yeah. of how humans have thought of this phenomenon 
for all of history. Because mm-hmm. giants are really weird. But the interesting thing is that everyone seems to think they existed. And then we also want to see how much of these myths specifically are just corruptions of biblical narratives that are certainly true. And we touched on that a little bit in the closing story of last week. But to do this, we're going to start by examining the cold open. Yeah. Okay. So, Brian, I want to hear your honest reaction to what we talked about, specifically Mm -hmm. the Greek myth section. Yeah, the Greek myth section. Now, one, one thing to set this up a little bit for me is that and this, this is an, an observation that really comes dovetailing between now part one and part two, mm-hmm. where we're looking at biblical evidence, and now we're coming and we're looking out across the lore and the mythology and the folklore of the, the world. But, but unlike many subjects that we cover or might even in the future cover in this section, we know that this phenomena is real. Yes, like, I think it's easy to overlook right, that. Right, We know it's real. Like the it's, whole, in, it's right there in the Bible. It's right, come on. <laughs> it's right. Like, the whole point yeah. of part one was to make it so that people don't have to suspend disbelief. Yeah. Because it is real. It is, yeah, exactly. It's just a matter of how accurate things are now. Right. Are they, are they, and obviously we expect for there to be mythic and folkloric accumulation and accretions on even true history as it runs down into the present. Um but that foundation gives me a whole different outlook. I mean, you know, at some point we might talk about ghost, you know, ghost things or um, even with the aliens and extraterrestrials. Right. We, we know about like the existence of demons and, and, and that like deceptive spirits. Well, we even said in season one, it was episode 10, the evangelistic mm-hmm. alien. We told the story about, I can't remember the lady's name, but she claimed to be abducted and they were trying to implant a hybrid seed in her yes. womb, you know? Like yeah. this is a motif that happens over and over and over again. Yeah. And it, Apparently, it's still happening today. Yeah, and and here you see it in the Greek myth, uh, yeah. in a sense, where that was really my biggest takeaway from the Greek mythology is that, number one, it is full of giants and different taxonomies of giants right. from these kind of demigod, enormous, like, uh, beings with clear supernatural powers and capacities and who are just straightforwardly in the Greek mythology, offspring of the gods, then down to this mixture, this admixture of the earthly and the heavenly. Yeah. It's not the true heavenly, but the Greek mythological heavenly. Right. And the result is giants. Giants. And other monsters. And other monsters. So to me, that was the most compelling part of the Greek myth is that, again, it it is a distorted echo of the true myth. Right. Where we see that there is, in the biblical account, giants who are the result of the heavens and the earth meeting in an unholy meeting, which is a huge theme that runs through scripture. Um, and I, I mean this, even if you take a Sethite view mm-hmm. of Genesis 6, for example, the the implication is still that we have the sons of God. They are the heavenly seed. Right. Even if you take the human non-supernatural view, symbolically still, it's heaven mingling with the fallen earth. And, and then you see Babel, which is man's way of reaching to the earth, which is again echoed in the stacking of have we gotten to that part yet? Maybe the stacking no. of the mountains. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, we, we did. Okay, yeah. I, I've, I'm so like steeped in giants I know, right I know. now that I'm I'm like, what have we covered? So We've far? been giant maxing. Yeah, for hours, for hours, <laughs> minutes. <now>. For me, days. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the the attempts to reach heaven again, mm-hmm. where all of it is the unholy attempt to seize power and to reach the heavens through the unholy mingling of heaven and earth. Right. This is false religion. This is Babel. 
Um, this is Babylon. This is the you know flesh magic and ancient uh, sorcery. This is like these themes run through all of these high strangeness phenomena and and all of folklore and mythology. Right. Again, why? Because they are distorted echoes of the true myth. Yeah. So that really stood out to me from the Greek myth. What what what's what are your reactions and thoughts to the cold open stories, Ben? Yeah. So I mean, I'll I'll kind of riff off what you said for a minute. If we ignore the giants part of it, the the really obvious, cool, crazy thing, mm -hmm. and look at the foundational narrative that that we're being told in Scripture, specifically at the Tower of Babel, mm -hmm. we have uh, this one event where man led by presumably uh, it's a good view a, a giant in mm -hmm. Nimrod trying to supplant God. Yeah. And then we have God judging that and dispersing them over the earth. And we have, a, I was even talking to someone this week and, and we were talking about like, if someone tried to create a universal language, would that be a, another babble? And I'm like, no, the thing is, is really every human endeavor that is, that doesn't start foundationally in Christ mm -hmm. is a, another babble. Yeah. Like Babylon the was babble. founded at the Tower of Babel. It didn't yeah. end. Mm -hmm. and, so, and then we have Babylon continuing even to the very end of Revelation where it's mm -hmm. finally... Where, where, where it's finally uh, in, even, defeated. Even the city of God's people, Jerusalem, typologically and symbolically right. becomes a Babylon right. and becomes a great harlot and becomes a Rome um, through their wicked throwing off of, uh, through apostasy, right. their covenant apostasy. That's one of the themes of the first century is that Israel is overrun with unclean spirits because they've thrown off their God right, and they've rejected him. So Babylon continues. Right. And I think where I'm going with that is we shouldn't then be, because it actually did really happen. The Tower of Babel really happened. Yeah. We shouldn't be surprised that that event becomes a paradigm mm -hmm. through which other cultures also see man's relation to the gods, especially in when I say gods, I mean, you know, the true God, but then also their own version of their pantheon. Yeah, their spiritual beings that they worship. Right, especially when they're pagans. Yeah. Because it, it informs your, it may be a small thing in, in the books, yeah. in the pages of Genesis, but it informs your entire view of human history yeah. and man's relation to the higher power. But anyway, that's just a another thought. But what? Well, I was going to say- You look like you have something to say, my guy. Um, I do think we've noted this several times. You noted it again in the outline that, um, you you start to see the depth of the richness of Lu of of like Lewis's thought. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, as a scholar of the medieval and understanding many of the historical roots of legend and what shaped the Anglo-Saxon mind and what shaped the uh, the European and the Western mind. Hi there, faithful listener. If you've been enjoying the Haunted Cosmos podcast and you'd like to see Ben and I live then come and meet us in person at the Right Response Ministries Conference, happening March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The title of the conference is Blueprints for Christendom 2.0, Seven Doctrines for Ruling the World. Some of our other speakers include Doug Wilson, Joe Boot, and the host of the conference, our friend Joel Webin. Yes, the whole conference is going to be really awesome. But the best part to me is that Brian and I will be on stage with Joel talking about the most unhinged things imaginable. Plus, by coming to the conference, it'll give us a chance to meet each of you in person. You can register for the conference by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. And don't forget to use the promo code HAUNTED to get 20% off of registration exclusively for our listeners. 
Lastly, if you're looking for another fantastic podcast, you got to check out Joel's podcast called Theology Applied. It's on Apple and Spotify, but you can also watch Theology Applied by searching Right Response Ministries on YouTube. Check the links in the description. Brian, you know how sometimes you wake up in the morning? Uh, yeah, hopefully everybody does that. Sure, maybe. But do you ever feel tired when you wake up? Well, yeah, Ben, I used to all the time, but then I I started drinking this new drink. Uh, It's actually called coffee, and it helps you wake up. No way. There's a drink that does that? Man, I should give it a shot. You definitely need to try this. And when you do, you should buy your coffee from Squirrely Joe's Coffee. They're a thoroughly Christian company who sends you a great coffee at an affordable price, Plus, they even donate some of their proceeds to Operation Underground Railroad, helping the effort to end child trafficking. Okay, wait, I actually have heard of Squirrely Joe's Coffee, and they are really great. They make it super easy to order exactly what you want. If you go to www.squirrelyjoes.com, that's www.squirrelyjoes.com, and click Shop Coffee. And first-time buyers can sign up to receive 20% off of their first order, just go to www.squirrelyjoes.com or use the link in the description below. Squirrely Joe's Coffee. Share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. He, he makes, and, and you see this in the Celtic Earth Mother right. legend. Which is clearly a corruption of Gaia. It's Yeah, it's Gaia. The Mother Earth. It's the Mother Earth, and it's connected with serpentine imagery. Right. Which shows you that, for example, in the silver chair where you have the lady of the green kirtle, who is the green serpent, who is the witch. I mean, she is clearly connected, connecting all of those through lines into this like children's story. And she lives in the bowels of the earth. She, yeah, she lives right. in the bowels of the earth and tries to make, <laughs> so it, it does, uh, I, I think it shows you that when you understand these mythological uh, folkloric streams, it grants a richness to your thought where you start to see the connections everywhere. Right. To the true myth and also to the, to the deceptions that have run throughout human history. So the other two big takeaways for me from the cold open is the kind of the the Mesoamerican and South American legends, specifically with Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. That has always been to me one of the one of the biggest neon signs in my life that has said like there is something more here than just people made it up. Mm-hmm. They smoked some peyote. I don't know if you do that. I don't know if you smoke peyote. Don't. Don't do it. If you can, don't. Kids don't. Okay? And then also, whatever you do do with it, also don't do that. Don't but it's do, not just like do people do did that, and then they came up with Quetzalcoatl. You know, yeah. something more like, was going oh. on. Like, look at this. So he's the feathered serpent, mm-hmm. which is always, it, that already is awesome. Yep. And then Viracocha is his kind of counterpart in South America. It, so they bring the flood, because they because they hate the giants yeah. and their wickedness, mm-hmm. it lasts sixty days. That so it's a multiple of forty at least, uh, and then <laughs> and then after that, some of them come back. Mm-hmm. So we see that again. Yeah. And what do they do when they come back? Well, they build a huge pyramid mm-hmm. that still exists in Mexico. You can mm-hmm. go see it. Yeah, and they judge it with fire from heaven, and they disperse the people and confuse their language. The, I'm not making that up. Yeah, right. They say that that's really what happened. Yeah. And guess what? In a sense, they're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it is kind of what happened. It's just that they're getting a lot of the details wrong mm-hmm. because they're starting from with their feet planted firmly in midair yeah. away from the truth of the gospel. And then the other one that I thought was really interesting was looking at how uh, in Japan, the term Ono, the mm-hmm. horn serpent. Oh, that's so interesting. Can also mean ghost or invisible spirit. Mm-hmm. 
And it reminds me of Rephaim. Rephaim, the which, shades. Right. It, it, it's used as shades in scripture mm-hmm. multiple times. But then also, let's go back further and relate that to the Greek myth. Mm-hmm. So we have when the blood of Uranus is spilled on the earth, we have the giants that come forth. Mm-hmm. Then we also have the furies and the wood nymphs. Yeah. Wood nymphs are deceivers of men, uh, kind of like elemental spirits. Yeah who are constantly trying to like lure men. They're like yeah. the sirens of land, okay? Yeah. So so we have something there. And we're going to probably definitely 100%, Lord willing, get into this kind of category of trickster yeah. lore as well. But, but Maybe even this season. Yeah. Uh, and then we also have the Furies, who are clearly like a demonic trope, mm-hmm. where you do something bad, and they oppress you your whole life until you finally die and go into the halls of, of, of Tartarus. Yes. And- that is so close mm-hmm. to what the Bible says about yeah. the giants and their disembodied spirits. Like, it's mm-hmm. so close. The connections that you can make are really striking. They certainly don't end here. No. But I think one thing that we can all agree with is that we we want to get into some more stories tonight. Yeah. And uh, because the history is rich. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, I was just going to make a note about pronunciation here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, by the way, <laughs> Great guys, idea. you may hear us saying Uranus. Uh, it's spelled. We just refuse. Like the planet is. Spelled. I refuse to say Uranus or Uranus because urine, and then also the other one's obvious. So listen, I know, I know that it's not the right pronunciation, but as a U.S. American, I have the authority to change the pronunciation of other cultures' right. words because English is the height, the peak. It's the peak. So we get. So to we do have that. that right as U.S. Americans, and we just wanted you to know that we know we're doing it. But that is now how you pronounce that word because the other ways are just cringe. And Uranus sounds better. It sounds cooler. Uranus sounds like Greek myth- mythology. Man, I just, I just okay. found a bug bite on my finger. Do you really? Yeah, that's bizarre. Dude, you need anything? How did I get a Dude, can you get me some stuff, some salad? I go to Chili's. <laughs> I'm also going to say one other pronunciation note. And there may be little ears watching. I'm not going to go into this. No, there's nothing. This okay. is just, we're just noting it. Okay, so just note. We are pronouncing it correctly. We when we say Lake Titicaca, that's what it's pronounced. That is how they say it. There's no way to change that. It's I mean, not. We're just not. So uh, Taiti Chaco. Try to be mature. So we're gonna try our best. Okay. Try to be and mature. And we're and we already failed. I mean, I had to edit out already. A, a laughing. You were laughing. Um, not but me. I just want to note that we're not trying to be ugly. That is how you say it. And also, if you hear some rain ambience in the background, I don't know how good our noise gates are. It's actually not sound design. It's pouring It's rain just here. raining outside. Right, right out of her window. And we, but, I don't know if you guys know this, uh, we work in like a dungeon. A basement dungeon. Right. It, it's really great. It's it a lot like the Tower really of London, great. except underground. Right. Of, but it is really cool. It's genuinely yeah, it's cool. It's actually cool. So, so let's move on. Yeah, let's, let's right, jump but, into some more stories here. And I think, Ben, that it makes sense for us to start on our home turf. Yes. Here in U.S. America, like we've said. Um, U.S. America. <laughs> I, I'm going to keep calling Amen. you that. You know? <laughs> because one of the, this this is, it was surprising to me. I can't recall exactly when I first started to encounter North American giant lore. Mm-hmm. It's been years at this point since I've started like reading on this and heard the different stories and lore. Um but you you find out that North America is just absolutely rich with giant legends and lore. The Iroquois, the Osage, the Tuscaroras, the Hurons, the Omahas, and lots of other North American, Native American tribes that we're aware of. And remember, these, these tribes don't have written languages. Yeah. And so 
it has to pass through oral tradition. So there are probably lots more that have been lost right. as well. But it just seemed ubiquitous. In North America, if you talk to people who dwelt here before European settlement or Spanish settlement, they talked about giants. And right. they were quite serious about it. Right. They were like, oh, yeah, there were giants here. My great-great-grandfather. Like, there is giant lore riddled throughout North America. And so we're going to start. Ben, if you would, please take it away. Yeah. Let's talk about the white giants of North America. I'd love to. And, and I'd love to start this story with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, okay. 16th president of the United States. He says, this is out of context, but he said it in a speech, quote, the eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as ours do now. On a warm morning in the summer of 1912, a dark shadow loomed over the residents of Jeffersonville, Indiana, though they didn't know it yet. One of their youth, an 18-year-old boy named George, had recently begun to get some wild and depraved ideas in his head. Though he had resisted the temptations for some time, they proved too strong, and the boy broke, descending into a crazed and mad greed that would stop at nothing. He finally decided that he wanted money, lots of money and that he would get the money he wanted, no matter the cost and blood or character. Thus, his search for riches began, and he didn't have to look far to find his first victim. George, having resolved to go through with these sins after finding that it felt good to give himself over to them, remembered that his grandmother Mary, who lived just down the familiar dirt path from his own house, had some lump sum of cash hidden away in her home. He slowly made his way to the old widow's house and let himself in, his poor grandmother suspected nothing and so put up no fight when George attacked and murdered her. He ransacked the house and found $75, about $2,500 in today's money, and he made off with it. He ran off and immediately spent it on who knows what, girls, booze, gambling. At any rate, the money was gone quickly and he found himself lusting for more. By now though, the people had grown suspicious. One of these people, George's older brother, had connected some logistical dots in his head and, noting George's change in behavior, accused his little brother of the murder. Something snapped again in George. Whether racked with guilt or anxiety over the prospect of suffering the punishment for his crimes, he immediately fled from his brother and took his own life. As reporters covered the story, they realized something profoundly important while thinking through the themes of greed and murder. Mary Kelly was the last living direct descendant of a very famous Shawnee Indian chieftain named Black Hawk Stewart. The reporters, maybe feeling nostalgic for the old tales of the native Indians, dug up the biography of Black Hawk and, to their surprise, quickly found that he was not the first Shawnee chieftain to bear this title. Turns out, there had been a chief named Hawkwing much earlier in Shawnee history, a man of war and conquest a man feared and revered by his contemporaries and descendants. The reporters discovered that some years before the gruesome murder of Mrs. Kelly, she had sat down with some other reporters and historians to tell them about the storied and epic history of Hawkwing's affairs with a strange race of people that the Indians found in the Ohio River Valley a long time ago. She remembered the story very well since it had been a chanting song sung to her as a girl. Though she no longer knew the tune, all of the details remained crystal clear, and she believed them to the very bottom. When Hawkwing came to this land, he found a race of mighty white people that lived near the banks of the Ohio River, 
right at the majestic stretch of 25-foot waterfalls that span the whole river. Their chief was a massively tall man with yellow hair who led them for ages in defending their claimed hills from the native Indian tribes who constantly tried to snatch it from them. They loved this area. The falls provided an excellent resource for fisheries, and the grounds were rich with game. These people worshipped the sun, and by all appearances, the sun had blessed them with riches and peace from their enemies. Hawkwing's people named the chief Yellowhair and quickly labeled him an obvious giant. According to the tradition, the nobility among Yellowhair's people would intermarry among themselves to preserve the great stature of their kings and princes, killing as many unwanted females as they could without completely killing off their race altogether. Despite the vast size of Yellowhair and the great experience in war his people had, Hawkwing coveted their rich lands and determined to take it for his own people. Trying covert tactics first, Hawkwing sent spies to Yellowhair, asking for his leave to share the fisheries and hunting grounds with his people, feigning an alliance when Hawkwing's men really just wanted information. Yellowhair said that the land in the river here was just enough to sustain his own tribe. Bringing in Hawkwing's people would strain the land. Besides, they preferred to live alone. Emboldened by the disappointing news and hungry for war, the Shawnee spies said that if Yellowhair would not comply with living together, they would slaughter him and his people, and they would take the region by force. Tall and strong, a giant without the disproportionate and awkward effects of giantism, Yellowhair laughed and scoffed at them. He said the sun god would protect him and his people with fire from heaven. He cursed the Shawnee people for their bloodlust, saying that any man who took part in an attempted massacre would suffer a violent death himself him and all of his descendants who tried to stay on the land. But alas, the Shawnee people had their own god, the Great Spirit, who inspired equal confidence in them. Hawkwing collected his army and made for the white tribe of giants in terrible force. Yellowhair, not wanting to risk his people against greater numbers unless he was forced to, evacuated his people to an island in the middle of the river, feeling certain the surrounding rapids and eddies would protect them. He was mistaken. As Yellowhair slept that night, thinking himself completely free from any real danger, Hawkwing and his braves diligently built strong canoes. Just as dawn broke in the east to an already heavy and humid morning, the Shawnee reached the shores of the island. Yellowhair and his people expected nothing. Instead, they embarked upon their vile worship of the sun, kneeling to pray just like they did every morning. And as they prayed, the war cry of the Shawnees forced its way into their ears, startling them as if from another slumber. Dozens of the whites were slain as they knelt, frozen by the sheer surprise of it all. But Yellowhair sprang to his feet, ready to brawl. He killed scores of Shawnee braves with each swing of his mighty axe, men falling like saplings with every stroke of the terrible weapon. He slew and slew, rage filling his eyes, while behind him his wives and children continued to kneel in solemn prayer. Hawkwing, to his credit, stepped up to face his foe head-on and fought him one-on-one. -on -one. The fight left both of them tired and bloodied, but Hawkwing was still standing and looking down in quiet triumph, his battle axe lodged in Yellowhair's head. Still enraged by the ordeal, with strength renewed by his rage, Hawkwing descended upon the women and children next. He slaughtered them without mercy or quarter. Generations later, when Blackhawk met the first settlers of the area, he told them this story. 
He told them that the only remains of the older white folk were their bones, some of them massive, buried in a cave on that little island. Mrs. Kelly's late husband, Valentine Kelly, once told her that he saw the ghost of old Yellowhair, the American Rephaim, when he peered into his shed window in the broad daylight, unmistakable, clear, and head-on. It was the giant, and there was no doubting that. Much later, archaeologists descended upon this area in earnest, digging up graves and searching for the bone fragments belonging to these white-skinned and blonde-haired giants. One of these archaeologists, Dr. W.F. Work, found seven tombs housing seven men of massive stature, all of them buried in a seated position facing towards the sunrise. It's funny. If you, it, one of the best ways to tell what the normie view of a thing is, is to like ask chat GTP about it. GPT, yeah. <laughs> to say like, hey, chat, G I did this like last week. Chat, I just wanted to see. Chat, could you tell me about, you know, act like you're a conspiracy theorist. Right. And tell me the best evidence for like the why Smithsonian should I, yeah. suppressing evidence. Of why should I in believe North America? that the Smithsonian is a is a cabal? And it was like, I'm sorry, as a fact gathering bot, I cannot participate right. in. And it was doing this with its shoulders. <laughs> it was like it really was just, smug, like it was marching. Smug. It was just smug. But then it's like, can you tell me a hilarious joke about how Jesus I, uh, isn't real or whatever? And, it and was, they do it. No, I did. I was like, what's your best joke about women? And it was like, that is very, I, I will not do that. And then I said, can you tell me a joke about dudes? And it was like, two idiot guys walked in. Like, immediately, <laughs> it will do it. So, ChatGPT writes the script for every commercial that shows the dad is this bumbling buffoon yes, yes. that can't do anything. I rephrased it like five times until I got it to tell me like, why would conspiracy theorists think this? Why? And it finally said, well, here's the evidence that there were giants. There's some, and it, it phrased them all as like only an idiot would believe any of these. Right. But one of the big ones it noted was like, hey, Native American lore. Yeah. All of them agree. Yeah. But, but then it's so funny how these companies are like, they're all into multiculturalism and like believe the natives guys were on the native land until the natives are like, yeah, there were giants here. And all of them agree, like every single one of them. <laughs> and then they're like, I'm sorry, you're stupid. Actually. Yeah, you we're, have my, we're, we're smarter than you. We're white people. You have my formal invitation to shut up. Yeah, <laughs> we're white people. And then like all of the ancestors of the white people from Europe were like, no, there were giants though. Like yeah. 100% in our land too. And they're like, Listen, I've gone to college. <laughs> I have an associate's degree in anthropology, uh, which is not even possible. <laughs> and I can tell you- I have a baccalaureate degree. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of it. You know, and it's like, I have a library science master's. Right. You know, so it's so funny to me that this is not just a fringe aspect of, of native folklore. Right, exactly. This and is, I mean, it's, through, it's thorough going. And it's not even that they all agree they were giants. Mm -hmm. It's that they were like, oh, uh, no, they were white. Yeah, they were white people. <laughs> they like, were white giants. And they had like blonde hair or red hair. Oh. Like they looked like you basically, except like way bigger. And not as handsome. Not, no, dude, <laughs> my brother in Christ, they were not as handsome Let's as you. Honest. Okay. Yellow hair, dude, get out of here. You, look, you got it. Right. <laughs> no, but this is, this is wild to me that rather than starting with, the idea that all ancient tales, mythology, and folklore is just made up or some kind of like campfire tales made to spook children, that kind of thing. My inclination 
because be, because of the Bible, mm-hmm. again, because of the biblical narrative, it's like, no, God said this, there's like this big flood and a bunch right. of, because of that, and basically all history is the battleground of the of heaven and earth. It's right. the battleground of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. It's this great cosmic, spiritual, physical war right. that is going to have a total winner and a total loser by the end. It's going to be Christ, by the way. Christ is Lord. Theoretically already is. It's just is now is practically Lord. being worked out. Yeah. Practically the the implication of his victory is being worked out through history. So But we digress. I, I just want to say say that here. And I know that there are other folks in Christian in the Christian world like Doug Van Dorn, yeah. who has who's written probably the book on the subject, Giants, the Sons of the Gods. Yeah. Where he talks more about this. But I would just challenge people before they have like this skeptical view of history. Where we we wash history and we're like, where are the bones? I'm like, guys, we're talking in some cases about things that happened thousands of years ago. Right. Human remains, skeletal remains, don't just stack up. Like, walk through a forest. You're not going to find a lot of bones, even though millions and millions of animals have lived and died in those woods. Exactly. Because yeah. uh, except in strange circumstances, like human beings intentionally preserving them, or very hot, dry climates, or or bogs, or— Or, like, frozen in glaciers. Frozen in glacier, glaciers, as Bear Grylls would say. Who is how I get all my— We have here a glacier. A glacier. I'm now going to climb this ice cliff. For no particular reason. I've been out here for a few hours, feeling thirsty. I'm going to have time to drink drink my urine. My urinus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, I can't even remember what I was saying before that. Well, so let me me follow up with you. uh, So Joel Beakey and his systematic. Here's me. Shot, Whoop. and then you take it under the leg. You're Kobe. I'm Shaq. Yeah. Except, like, I'm more handsome. Well, I mean, it's hard to argue right now. <laughs> Shaq's pretty handsome. Uh, so Joel Beakey and his systematic talks about how in order to r- really have a-, a worldview that's informed by Christ, mm-hmm. you have to be steeped in the scriptures in such a way mm-hmm. that you're not trying to say that anything that's not in them is false. Mm-hmm. Instead, you're using the the paradigm that scripture provides mm-hmm. to then look at everything. Yeah. So the so scripture is a lens. It's like a semi-permeable lens where only that which is true according to it can get through. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so anyway, I think that that's also how you're supposed to view nature and history. And the thing that gets me about this is that there's absolutely nothing in the scripture that would prohibit this story from being true. Like, that's where I'm yeah. going with this. But the one thing that I can never understand is, like, what about the white? skinned thing. Yeah, what is up with that? Like, it, was that a reaction against how they felt like the mm-hmm. the settlers were, you know, uh, evil, and so they, they like, mm-hmm. put that in to give a villain that they could all rally around? Yeah. Or is there something more? And so this is when we have to use that biblical principle mm-hmm. of looking at, like, is there anything in Scripture that if we, if we look deeper into it could inform this? And it turns out there might be. The milk skins. The milk skins, otherwise known as... The Gauls. Otherwise known as... The Galatians. The Galatians. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but there's a book in the New Testament called Galatians. Yeah, the epistle of Paul to the, the Galatians. Right, the apostle Paul wrote and it. in it, he said some really based stuff. He does indeed. And everyone should go read it right now. Pause I the wish video. they'd go the whole way. Go read Galatians. <laughs> not going not gonna to elaborate. And uh, Cronus to Uranus themselves. Anyway. I think so, we've <laughs> now made a niche reference that the kids won't. If but, you get it, you get it. If so you know, you know. it turns out the the Gauls 
eventually came from the Galatians. And the Galatians came from further east, Mm -hmm. and then they migrated over into that kind of fertile crescent north of the Mediterranean. And then eventually they kept going up, and hey, then we got some epic stories of war between them and Julius Caesar. The Gallic, the Gallic Wars. Right, the Gallic Wars, the Galatianic Wars, otherwise known as. But one of the interesting things about the root of the Galatians' name is that it's the word Gaul, uh, which eventually became the Celts, and it means milk-skinned. Milk-skinned. I don't know if you guys know this, but milk is white. Okay? I mean, unless it's a brown cow. (laughs) The milk I drink exclusively is brown, and it tastes like chocolate. Well, okay. Uh, Normal milk. Okay. Beef milk. Beef milk. Is white. Okay, gotcha. uh, I'm following now. I'm following. Right. And then another name for it uh, that we get from the Celt uh, continuation of the word Mm -hmm. is powerful or valiant men. So here's what I'm going to do. Because this is the idea. The idea is that the Galatians were giants. I'm just going to show my hand. Or at least there were giants among them. Or at least there mm-hmm. were giants among them. But it's it's more fun to say... Like Paul wasn't writing a letter <laughs> to a congregation to a bunch exclusively of giants. Of giants. I, I just want to make sure no one thinks that that's what we're saying. That is what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> he may have mentioned He's not it, saying you know? that. Like he may have been like... <laughs> He's not, the he elephant in the room, literally, he actually you guys did. are giants. This is not in the box. Like, he didn't say that. He so didn't I'm say just, that. He didn't <laughs> no, say I'm that. just kidding. But the idea is that they... So from extra biblical sources, they're constantly referred to as valiant, mighty men. That's the name of Celt, and then uh, Gaul means milk skinned. So the idea is that as they migrated north into Europe, they mm-hmm. also eventually found their way into the Americas. And that's where we get this race of white skinned, yeah. blonde haired giants. Ben, I'm wondering if you might have any quotes from, oh, for example, Doug Van Dorn's book, Giants, the Sons of the Gods, that might give some amplification and illumination of the point that you're making. My brother in Christ. Say no more. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's hear. Here. So I'm going to quote, which from, is a great book. You guys should. Pick it is it up. really like genuinely a great. We'll, book. we'll put a link to the in the description that you can go pick up a copy for yourself. I said this last episode, but I'm just going to sing its praise yet again. The 10th anniversary edition is out, uh, uh-huh. and it's got some bonus stuff that Doug put in there. Yeah. Pastor Van Dorn, and it, it, it's very very good. So, yeah. quoting now from the book, the early 18th century historian Paul Pezron says the Gauls quote exceeded all others in bulk and strength of body. And hence it is that they have been looked upon to be terrible people, and as it were, giants. End quote. For example, the Roman historian Julius Florus in the second century AD describes one Tutabocus, who was a blue-eyed, yellow-haired Gallic king, as a man of extraordinary stature, who used to vault over four or six horses at once, but could scarcely mount one when he fled which means he was too big to mount a horse. Yeah. That's the idea. Can you, can you jump over four horses? I am at three right now. It depends on how they're laid out. I was picturing them like head to tail, head to tail, head to tail, <laughs> and he was jumping over them long wise. I was picturing like Evil Knievel style where it's width-wise. They're width stacked. That's a little bit less impressive. I still can't do that, uh-huh. but I could. Parkour, you know? and then you I could go. if I really had, like gun yeah. to my head, I could do it. Wow. So when this, uh, when this Gullet King was captured, he was seen above all the trophies or spoils of the enemies, which were carried upon the tops of spears. Another quote says, the Celts across the Rhine were called Germani. That's where we get Germans from. And that means true Celts, according to Strabo. The Christian historian Hegesippus wrote that the Germans are superior to other nations by the largeness of their bodies and their contempt of death. The Roman Vegetius wrote, what could our undersized men have done against all these tall Germans? 
Columella says, nature has made Germany remarkable for armies of very tall men. Sidonius Apollinaris reports that so many of the people were seven feet tall and up that he could not address them properly. As in like he couldn't count how many people were over seven feet tall. Yeah. Being seven feet tall is not normal, by the way. By the way, these these people, these quotations have, they've spanned all the way from um, like 60 BC. Right. Onward, now we're into the fourth century AD. Exactly. So it's not all one group. These are reports that span across centuries. Yeah, and even Augustine writes that a, a German goth woman was being paraded around the streets of Rome who was so gigantic that she topped over all others. She's a woman, generally smaller than men, and yet she was easily visible over top of all the other people's heads in Rome, which is a crowded city. As late as the 1500s, a German by the name of Amion grew to 11 feet tall. 1500s, this guy was 11 feet tall. The famed Baron Benton Ryder, who was himself eight feet, eight inches, hardly reached up to Armin's armpits. Wow. Still another named Hans Bra was estimated at 12 feet and eight inches tall. I don't know when he lived, but the point is, the point is the German people that they're talking about descended from the Celts, mm -hmm. descended from the Gauls, descended from the Galatians. Mm -hmm. And all of them were described as milk-skinned white folk who yep. were very tall. Mm -hmm. And then the idea is that they somehow, find again, found their way over to the Americas and that's where we get uh, the, the roots of this Native American legend. And what's even crazier is you start to see the interrelatedness of all these various lore and phenomena is that if you think back to the Gilgal Raphaim megalithic structure. Yep, that concentric circle stone yeah, structure. For for worship and a lot of these like uh, often connected with astronomical associations, the stars and the heavens. Right. Again, heaven and earth. The Celts are known for Druidism. Yes. Stonehenge, these kind of other megalithic structures and astronomical uh, alignment and astrological interest as well. And also what are the Druids known for? Mm, human sacrifice. Of human course. Sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> the known for human sacrifice. I asked you that and, you're, uh, and then I was like, wait, like, what's he fishing for? They're known for, for a lot of things. Yeah. Hey, you want to know something interesting too? I, I learned this recently. Hmm. I was listening to a two and a half hour documentary on Druids mm -hmm. and it turns out, uh, and, and we kind of knew this, but Druidism as we know it today didn't come about until long after the construction of Stonehenge. Mm. So the idea is that the Druids found Stonehenge yeah. already made mm. and were somehow able to, we think, grow confident that they knew what it was used for. Yeah. And then they started using it for the same purposes, yeah. which was star worship and human sacrifice. And it's funny that all of the, again, this is another- Guys, that's crazy. Get out of here. I mean, like, come on. That's nuts. On, Circles are evil, you know. <laughs> I think <laughs> spirals, though. This is another example of the um, chronological snobbery of modern commentators, where they're like, all of the ancient sources say that the druids were associated with human sacrifice. Literally, there's not a single source. <laughs> there, this drove me up the wall. Okay, I'm listening to this guy who put a lot of work into this documentary. Every single source that he cites mm -hmm. says, and they also uh, sacrificed people. People, they killed people. It, it may, you know, they were slaves or they were war captives. But if they didn't have any of those, they would just find the the weakest member of the village and they'd sacrifice yeah. him to the star god. And then he has the gall, the the and not and I Galatian mean, gall. pun intended. He has the gall he to say, gall. yeah, that probably isn't true. It's probably all made up. Even though it's the only thing that all of them agree on. <laughs> yes, about like, the druids. No, they didn't do that. 
that that means speak poorly of the Druids. The point is that a lot of these ancient, let's draw some threads together to make sure if people are following what Go we're for saying. It. Yeah, because we're just kind of. So <laughs> we have a lot of connections that we're making here with Gauls with abnormal size being ubiquitous, testified many, many times over through history across right. the centuries, different people, different times, all the way up to like the Middle Ages. Right. Where they're like, yeah, they're and really tall people. Early Renaissance. In early Renaissance. Yeah, so, 1500s. So we're saying, look, this race is associated with extreme size up to seven and, you know, seven feet tall being normal. And then beyond that. 12 feet. Yeah. yeah. Then we're we're connecting that with the um, the milk skin, the whiteness, the, the, the Celt being valiant, men of valor kind right. of thing. And then with Druidism and human sacrifice and astronomical and astrological worship and megalithic structures and that kind of thing. What we're saying is that the giant aspect of this runs parallel with all of the other giant things. Exactly. Yes. It all connects. So the giant thread mm -hmm. is right there woven with mm -hmm. the thread of star worship, yeah. worship of the heavenly host, human sacrifice, serpentine imagery. And you can remember, yeah. if you remember from, from Giants Part 1, I mean, we talk about that pretty explicitly with the Gilgar Raphaim. Mm -hmm. But then I think this episode's big proof text of that is the serpent mound in Ohio that we talked yeah. about in the cold open. Yeah. I mean, how much more obvious could it get? Yeah. It's literally the biggest earth effigy in the world, mm -hmm. and it's in the form of a serpent. Mm -hmm. You can look this up. It's yeah. unmistakable. Go it look at it. It is a serpent. Yeah, it's a serpent. And, they, and people are like, no, it seems pretty clear that whatever the thing that the serpent's eating mm -hmm. at its mouth, which is a big circle mound thing of its own— Whatever it was, it was also an altar. Yeah. And it seems to be an altar where they practiced human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the bends in yeah. the serpent's body line up to summer equinox and winter yeah. solstice. Astronomical. Calendar science. days. So all of these things come together. Yep. And it's just, it, it leaves you completely alarmed. Okay, but what about, mm -hmm. what about modern day? Yeah, what about modern day? What about, all right, let me ask you this first. Yeah. We've like teased this, I think, already. Do you think that it's possible for giants to still be around? Not like giantism as a disease, but someone who is giant. Mm -hmm. The Family Captain is all about helping Christian husbands build an incredible marriage and family culture. It's family leadership, it's sex and marriage, all made practical so husbands, wives, and children can enjoy God's best and truly thrive. And here's the deal. Every six months, our friends over at The Family Captain open enrollment for one month only to let guys into The Expedition. The Expedition is your monthly subscription to practical family leadership and thriving intimacy. Inside The Expedition, you'll experience brotherhood, mentorship, and a powerful curriculum. You'll build attraction in your marriage, embrace your family identity, and build a family culture that you're excited about. So if you want to take your marriage from just fine to thriving, get into the expedition before it closes on Christmas Eve. Go to thefamilycaptain.com expedition to sign up now. Or check the links in the show notes below. Our sponsor, Private Family Banking Partners, is on a mission to help Christians live out the Dominion Mandate by making a stealth-like move away from the mainstream banks and into their own privatized banking system. This innovative system is designed to guarantee uninterrupted compound interest and tax-free growth without exposure to typical stock market risks. 
To join this growing community that is already building wealth onto future generations and converting post-mill talk into post-mill action, contact Private Family Banking partner Chuck Delateranti at his email chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. That's chuck at privatefamilybanking.com. To set up an appointment and receive a free copy of Chuck's new book, Protect Your Money Now, How to Build Multi-Generational Wealth Outside of Wall Street and Avoid the Coming Banking Meltdown, go to the links in the show notes below. Again, thinking through the the semi-permeable scriptural lens, there's nothing there that would make it not possible. Right. There's nothing there that would preclude because we know there were giants before and after the flood. We know right. that giants have continued lore into very recent times, as we'll see even very, very recent times. Um, so to me, there's no reason why there couldn't be giants. Right. And sometimes I think human beings tend to overestimate, especially in modern day where we have the illusion of all knowledge at our fingertips through the internet and the cell phone and things like that. Um, we have the illusion that we know everything, but considering the vastness of the world, and just how many places there are in it mm-hmm. that human beings, you look on a globe and you're like, oh, look how small that is. Right. We've shrunk it down to something I can hold in my hand. If you go stand in front of, you know, the the rainforest stretching out in front of you and the Congo. Yeah. For, and we've, I mean, we've, we've cut a lot of it down, but you still look vast. If you go to Alaska. Or the Utah desert even. Go to the Utah desert. <laughs> if you go to these places, you see the vastness of space and to me it's it is it's not impossible right right that that there are still giants what do you think ben so i i agree with everything Mm -hmm. that you said Mm -hmm. i also am sympathetic Mm -hmm. to people who say well it seems like it doesn't fit if what we're saying about giants is true that they're evil you know uh or, or they began as evil at the very least it doesn't seem to fit that christ has finished his work on the cross he's ascended to the right hand of God. He's one, you know, and yet somehow giants are still around. Like that just doesn't seem to work. And I am sympathetic to that. But I would also say that God uh, in Christ gives his church work to do mm-hmm. in response to his victory. Yeah. And that work includes snuffing out evil from the world. Yeah. And so look at something that's easier to, to, an easier pill to swallow like dragons. Yeah. You have dragons being vanquished, supposedly, mm-hmm. in medieval times. We got to do a dragon episode. Yeah, by yeah the way. We, will, we, will. we will. Okay. Because we got to tell about Smaug. Oh, Smaug. Yes. Okay. But so what I was saying was, I understand that view, but think about what Christ did. Mm-hmm. Uh, apart from the salvific part of it, what did he do to the world? Mm-hmm. Well, it was, in a sense, a a recreation of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 70 AD, we had this like big decreation event where yeah. God, the covenant with Israel alone officially ended. Mm-hmm. And now it's all of the world that's welcome to Christ. And so then we have it recreated after this massive thing that Christ mm-hmm. did. Well, the only other time that something like that has happened is in Genesis when the flood came. We had the flood, which was, I mean, scripture talks about it as if it was a decreation of one world mm-hmm. and a recreation of the other one. It doesn't mean that literally one world was tossed away and it's now hurtling through space yeah. unused, but it, it's as if mm-hmm. one world ended and another began. Yeah. And yet, even after that, we still had giants going around. We still had, you know, Noah, the family that was saved, they had work to do mm-hmm. in snuffing out evil in the world. So I don't think that it's impossible 
I think that it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. But I don't think that it's categorically impossible. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so mm-hmm. with that said, yeah. a modern story of uh, a modern folkloric story yeah. of a giant still existing. As Alexander the Great. I love how you say a modern story and then you're like, Alexander the Great. That's the first thing you say. <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. Like, trust, trust. Look, you guys know how I do this, okay? <laughs> like, this is, no, this is no surprise. Take, take us there. To man. the constant listener. Take us there. As Alexander the Great swept across the Eastern world during his unparalleled military campaign in the third century BC, he met and conquered a Persian force in one of their more prominent cities. For already 700 years, the city and the military force here had served the surrounding lands well, offering resilient defensive resources for any nearby dwellers. But most great cities eventually fall, and this one, whose earliest names are lost to history, was no exception. Alexander trotted victorious through the city, basking in yet another glory he and his men had won for themselves and for all of Macedonia. The city was prominent enough for Alexander to maintain settlement there for some time. Accordingly, he gave it a new name, Alexandria and Eracosia. The local dialect struggled with the Greek, though. They quickly shortened it to Skandar. As long and storied stretches of time passed, the name of the place settled nicely on Kandahar. In 2002, following the tragedy of 9-11 in the U.S., Operation Enduring Freedom was well into the throes of its most brutal battles. American forces had descended upon Iraq with epic force, thinking a quick show of brutal power would make for a short war. Oh, how wrong they ended up being. The fighting centralized in the ancient city of Kandahar, the de facto capital of the Taliban at the time. As it had always done before, the city again proved resilient, simply refusing to be overthrown. Her people were as hardy as the jagged hills that surrounded them. At any rate, the fighting raged on, and American forces sought an advantage in those chrysogram peaks nearby. So patrols were sent out frequently and always returned with mixed reviews. One day, though, a patrol did not return at least not on time. Of course, to the top brass, it was unsettling given the nature of the situation. They didn't want men just lost. So after a long period of radio silence, far too long a period for some, a special operations unit was sent to follow their trail and investigate. They hiked for days over rugged terrain, beaten down by the hot desert sun that seemed to push on their loaded rucks until their knees wanted to buckle beneath the exhaustion. As they left camp one morning, slightly refreshed after a night of touch-and-go sleep, they quickly stumbled upon the mouth of a great cave. They had seen many of these already, but this one was different. Army equipment littered the entrance. Hope was kindled in the men, but there was no sign of the missing soldiers' actual bodies. Still in quiet consideration of what they had found, and before any attempt at radio contact with OHQ had been made, A massive spear was shoved out of the cave's mouth, impaling one of the soldiers with horrifying ease. The others watched in disbelief as a 15-foot-tall giant man-creature stepped out of the cave. They say he smelled like death and decay. They say he had red hair. They say he had six fingers on each hand and massive leather moccasins on his feet. In a blaze of panicked and desperate gunfire that lasted for 30 straight seconds, The giant finally whimpered and stumbled, falling to the ground with the thud of a felled oak tree. It took 30 seconds of firing from about a dozen M4 carbines, raining rounds on the monster for it to finally succumb. 
That's an astounding report, if true. Having made peace, they called for a Chinook to come and evacuate them. There was no hope for the lost patrol, they figured. They watched with sullen faces as the first Chinook came and carried the giant away. They loaded onto the second and went back to camp. None of them ever saw the giant beast again. And if the story is to be believed, each of them were forced to sign non-disclosure agreements to kill the wild story right then and there. But despite this, soldiers in the Kandahar region during that time period considered the story an open secret. All of them feared the caves in the mountains. I think the first thing we can say, Ben, is that this is obviously true. This is 100, I mean, if anyone is critical of this, I don't respect you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. No, this, so he, this is a story where we're telling it to you as folklore. Right. Again, so take some of the, some of the stories that we tell in these different episodes. What they are is folklore. Some, uh, you know, some of them are folklore that are recorded in, in ancient or medieval, uh, um, com compilations of folklore, books, scrolls, yeah. oral tradition. Um, some of them are going to be modern sources of fol folklore, which is fueled now by the internet. And these exactly. stories have their own, take on a life of their own. Many people come in copycat. People make stuff up. People do fictional writing for fun or whatever, you know, trying to get their posts to go viral. So this is one of those sto stories where what we're asking first is just simply, is this possible? Could this right. have happened? Exactly. Not is it true. Not is it true. We don't know if it's is true. Is it possible? But is it even possible? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, yeah. Again, I don't think there's a reason why <laughs> this could not be possible. Is it likely? I'm going to say no. I'd prefer the word certainly true to lie. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> it's, I think there's, this is one of those stories that you've probably, you might have heard it before. Um, I know I'd heard it from several different places. Mr. Yeah. Ballin did a thing yep. on it yep. before, but. Um, I think that even Wendigoon has talked about it. Has in, he really? In his uh, conspiracy theory mega tier oh, iceberg yes. video thing. By the way, Wendigoon. Please. Come closer. <laughs> closer. <laughs> Psst. We like you. Do something with us. Can we talk to you? <laughs> Can we talk? Answer our emails. He's not going to see this video. He's not going to see this video, guys. <laughs> like, but it, all right. So if we, whatever disbelief you have, okay, if you suspend it for just a minute and allow the following presuppositions: mm -hmm. one, that the Gallic people were the Galatians before they were the Gauls, and they eventually became the Native Americans. They had white skin and red or blonde hair, and they were giant people. Two, you recognize that some of those people may not have traveled or migrated with all of the others. Maybe they went into the modern-day Iraqi region. Mm -hmm. And then three, recognize that even though uh, it, it would take a lot of people to continue up to the modern day mm -hmm. in that sort of setting, it may not take as many as you might think. Mm -hmm. Like, people are actually pretty resilient if they're healthy. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think that there's anything that, on the face of it, makes this impossible. How long do giants live? What's a giant lifespan? Exactly. I mean, I think that they probably, they're giant. Look, listen. Let me Aren't do their lifespans also giant? Let me do some science. Big, tall, many inches. So big, true. Big, big, old, many years. Many days. I'm Native American, so anything I say is actually true. Well, I mean, if I remember right, some of the Native American legends say that they were supposed to be like, they lived for a long, long time. Long lives or something like that. So yeah, there's... There's no reason why we can't say, like where we'd say, rule it out, there's absolutely no way. Exactly, yeah. Also, the, the government would totally do that. Like if they had a giant, they'd Chinook it yeah, out of there. Right. They'd NDA it up and they'd never tell because you. Because people are like, oh, well, 
the there's no there's no way to confirm it. Duh. <laughs> yeah. There's no I way mean, to confirm just, any folklore. You at find all. like I've read many uh books on the more like analytical or skeptical or scholarly end and some of these things are articles. And at the end of the day, many of them are still evaluating things right. that are by their nature firsthand eyewitness accounts. Even things like sleep paralysis, those are going to be someone telling you of an experience that happened to me. Exactly. So even if you can document that, yeah, I really sat down with the person, they really said this, it wasn't just you know a story that floated around. At the the nature of the thing is that it's still not confirmable. It's their right. It's your witness. witness. It's yeah. your credibility mm-hmm. that's that's on the table. Mm-hmm. And so, really, the question is: Would well, you trust what you're hearing from mm-hmm. the person you're hearing yeah. it from? And if they're giving a firsthand account and you trust them, well, then you're going to believe that it's true, mm-hmm. even if it's very difficult to conceive of actually happening. Mm-hmm. So, another really cool example, I think, just to get just to show that this isn't a one-off, mm-hmm. like this isn't a creepy pasta that someone wrote, and there's no other giant stories in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a video that I saw recently that was insane. And it was like these, I think it was like three guys. They were sitting up on um, on a big hill over in some flatland, like flyover state. I have no idea as, as to the details, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And, and it looked like they were glassing for deer or something like that yeah. over some various properties. And you know how some sometimes there'll be like a river that runs straight through two pastures mm-hmm. and there's a lot of, of trees growing up around the river. Yeah. So they had zoomed in on this one section because they thought they saw something moving. And this, it's crazy, okay? There is a, I mean, there's no other way to describe it, a giant that's walking in the creek that's like going under the trees and stuff. And it's like as tall as the trees. Show me, send me the tape. I'm, I'm going to have to send me the tape. The, I'll find it. I'll put it in the show notes Send me well. the tape. I got to see it. If I can find it. Here's the thing about some of these too is that when you're looking at Okay, photographic or video evidence today. It's almost like I don't know how courts are going to handle this. Oh, I know. Yeah. Because it's so easy now with the technology literally in front of me. Well, with now the laptop can... in front of me, I could make right. a, a giant. Video. A I mean, I personally couldn't. I don't have the skills, but <laughs> someone with the skills could take this. And that's how approachable it is to make something believable now versus. Or even with the, with the advent now of like AI art. Uh-huh. programs. It's not true AI. It's like machine learning mm-hmm. uh, art stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it, and now it can be video. And uh, like I saw a, a video that AI made that was mm-hmm. a trailer for like 1984 or something like that. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. I was like, I want to see this movie really, really bad. Yeah. It looks like a great, wow, a, a great uh, yeah. adaptation of the book. Yeah. Give it 10 years, give machine learning and those things, and they'll be making films that are Hollywood level yeah, exactly. production. That's the the fearful part. And I guess I guess the point in all that is to say that we still live in an age of folklore. Yeah. And the reason is that humans are creatures of story and folklore. Yes. We'll never escape that. Never. It's just now it looks different than it did in the past. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, you know, Reddit or some guy that you made a mega thread on Twitter or something yeah. or an Instagram video and yeah. you're like, "Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. What was that?" Or TikTok, like there's stories of uh guys on TikTok who think they see a giant up in the mountain mm-hmm. and they make six videos. Like they're trying to go back and see it. And then they're stopped by mysterious men in black. And then their account gets wiped and they Dang. never make a TikTok again. Like that's modern folklore. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's false. That's, yeah. that's part of what we're trying to say. Right. It just means that you have to approach it as you'd approach any folklore, mm-hmm. yep. which is with maybe an air of suspicion, but also an air of a willingness 
to be proven wrong yeah, sure. about your presuppositions. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm totally following you. Okay, so here's the deal. I we we should close out this episode. Yeah, I think it's I think it's time. In the words of C.R. Wiley, let's bring this thing in for a landing. In the words of um me right now, <laughs> of what I'm about to say, <laughs> we're talking about giants, but the episode doesn't need to be. Oh, that's really good. In the words of me, what I'm about to say, mm-hmm. I have to pee. And so Let's close this thing out. Let's close it We've out. said what we need to say. An episode has to, it has the limitation of a bladder, of a human <laughs> bladder. So Ben, why don't you start us off and let's let's go up to the, 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 the mountains of Bolivia. Yes, Take let's do it. Let's do it. In the late Bronze Age, as depicted in marvelous ancient carvings that can still be seen in Egypt and in the records of other kings around the Mediterranean, a mighty people came from the sea one time and destroyed many kingdoms. Anatolia, Syria, Phoenicia, Canaan, Cyprus, and Egypt were all severely crippled by the onslaught of this mysterious group of ocean pilgrims. Their origin and actual identity and history remains a massive mystery even today, but some educated speculation can be done. Most records indicate that the Sea Peoples were made up of various groups spread across the Aegean Sea, Southern Europe, and Mediterranean islands, all prime real estate for the giant myths of the Greeks and other surrounding mythologies. After one last attempt at invading Egypt, the great and militant pharaoh Ramses III conclusively repelled the Sea Peoples during the Battle of the Delta. This battle was on the heels of the Sea Peoples' final campaign that had already conquered Cyprus in the region to the far north of Canaan, known as Bashan. As punishment for the, to put it lightly, inconvenience, that the Sea Peoples had caused the Egyptian pharaoh, he sent them off to exile, too angry at them to even keep them as forced laborers. In his record, he called them the Peleset Nation, and he documented giving them a stretch of coastland bordered on all other sides by the mighty Canaanites. And thus, the nation of the Philistines was formed, a nation that we know for certain, thanks to the history of King David, possessed mighty giants. But where else did these Philistines, these Sea Peoples, come from? And what else might they have done before embarking on such a grand maritime war campaign? Such advanced seafaring technology certainly had more perks than just tormenting a few petty and a few major kingdoms in the Mediterranean, right? Well, maybe. Just maybe. If you recall our first ever main episode, High Strangeness on the High Seas, You might remember a fun little theory we had regarding the lost city of Atlantis. What if, we boldly said, what if Atlantis was real? What if it was a real city that existed before the flood, that was governed by fallen angel demigods and their giant Nephilim children? And it was. And it was. Now we must ask some other related questions. What if some legend of Atlantis remained in the minds of Ham's descendants after the flood? What if, following the utter failure of Babel, a group of giants and men shoved off from shore, seeking to refind that antediluvian paradise they had heard so much about. What if they still remembered some of the ancient skills possessed by their forefathers? And what if in their travels, they found their way to the far western edge of the world? High in the Andes Mountains of Bolivia lies the incredibly well-preserved remnants of the oldest known city in the world, It's said to date as far back as human history, according to creation and flood timelines, are able to go. 
It is, as far as we can tell, the earliest complete city that is still preserved for us today. Immediately, though, it presents us with an oddity, for it is held aloft beside the shores of Lake Titicaca in the mountains at 12,400 feet. At this altitude, the air is expensive, supply being far outnumbered by the demand of any people here. Exertion for even a very fit people quickly becomes difficult here, so one can imagine the hardship a people would suffer when trying to build a megalithic city this far above sea level. And yet, despite both of these factors, the extreme age and extreme altitude, 60-ton stones sit immovable on top of 100-ton limestone blocks, some of it looking as if it was just placed there yesterday. Statues of strange giant chimeras litter the grounds and stick their faces out from the walls like gargoyles on a medieval cathedral. And still today, again, despite the great age, the surface of most of the stones presents itself as alarmingly smooth to the touch of even the most tender hand. The level of precision presented to observers cannot be overstated. The enormous stone blocks making up the massive walls are cut into irregular shapes and are not bonded by any visible mortar or other bonding agent. And yet, one cannot find anywhere in the whole city, where the walls are still intact at least, where a credit card can fit between two of these blocks. What's more, archaeologists believe that the stones were extracted from an ancient quarry just over 200 miles away. 200 miles! and 12,000 plus feet of elevation. This task would be impossible today. It's far more than Herculean, it's otherworldly. Even more than that, when scientists compare what they see with their eyes to the generally accepted timeline of human technology, they're faced with the fact that the wheel was not even supposed to have been invented yet. One of the greatest monoliths at the site, a 10-foot-high, 100-ton stone frieze in the Gate of the Sun lintel, depicts numerous animals that were supposed to only have existed very far back in the Earth's history to a materialist modern. Serpent imagery is, of course, highly featured here. These structures carry great astrological significance as well, with the Gate of the Sun lining up precisely with the solstices and equinoxes of the year in various ways. One thing all of this proves is that the ancient peoples, whoever they were and whoever they were informed by, they weren't drooling idiots sitting around and waiting to die. These ancients were active, in many ways advanced, and incredibly aware of the book of nature that surrounded them on all sides, even if they couldn't read it perfectly. Even given these points in their favor, though, we still must ask the burning question. Who exactly made Tiwanaku and other cities of the ancient world like it? As we said earlier, Central and South America share many similarities in their myths of how civilization was established after the global flood that destroyed all life. According to them, a bearded white man arrived on the shores of their lands long ago. He gave them society and writing and taught them skills for building mighty things. They venerated him as a god, a son of the great sun god. The Aztecs called him Quetzalcoatl, the Mayans called him Kukulkan, and the Incans called him Viracocha. The deep histories of the peoples of the Andes say that it was these high peoples who built the great cities that we still marvel at today. In fact, if you ask who built Tiwanaku, the Peruvians will tell you what their ancient forefathers told them. The Atlans, they say, they came on boats with Viracocha, bringing great knowledge and skill with them. It is said that over time, 
as Viracocha and his other light-skinned, semi-divine people settled in the high plains of the Andes. They were attacked by a chief named Kari from the valley below. The chief massacred the mighty and fair people. Only a few of them are said to have escaped into the sea, and they were never seen again. Did this begin the legend of the Sea Peoples and their tour of vengeance on the other side of the world? We don't know. Did these giants from the Far East build some of the most precise and perplexing structures in the ancient world, high in the thin mountain air, only to abandon them to what was, in their eyes, a lesser race? We don't know. What we do know is that the Earth's past is a storied one. There's far more to the ancient history than meets the eye at first glance. It is a glorious story, partially concealed, whose truth will surely sing the praises of our God.